friends. This is episode two of the Schwar and how to make a shrunken head. If you haven't heard part one yet, I recommend you go back and give that a listen first, since it'll give a lot more context to what I'll be discussing in this episode. Just to recap, last time we went back to the early 16th century when the Schwar defeated Incan Emperor Huayna Capec so utterly that he had to placate them with gifts as he retreated and never again attempted a reconquest. Then we moved forward to 1599 CE when the Schwar led their famously ferocious revolt against the Spanish Empire and won, never to be subjugated again. That's the one where they forced molten gold down the throat of the governor of Lagrano until his lungs melted and his bowels burst. Then they killed upwards of 20,000 people. Since we get these numbers from the Spanish, it's possible they're inflated, along with the purported 20,000 Schwar warriors that were said to have attacked, but even so, we know the numbers were probably up somewhere in the thousands on both sides. This time, we'll be focusing on the fascinating beliefs of the Schwar and what those beliefs had to do with those famous shrunken heads everyone went crazy for, starting in the 19th century. After that, I'll take you on a head raid through the jungle and describe in fairly gory detail just how to make one. But please don't. I'm your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. The more I researched the Schwar, the more they continued to fascinate me. I mean, this culture was so rich and so unique, and it's been such a pleasure delving into it all over the last couple of months. I keep using the past tense to describe the Schwar, and that's because the specific way of life of the Schwar I'm talking about is no longer what it was when anthropologist Michael J. Harner wrote his famous ethnography in the 1950s. Even when he went back in the 60s, their way of life had been so influenced by the West, it was already apparent that it had changed forever. The last lines in his book are, quote, The culture of the Hivero, as described in this book, now largely belongs to history. Personally, I view it as a loss, emotionally and scientifically, and only hope that these meager efforts will help preserve a record of what was once a magnificently distinctive lifestyle, unquote. Harner called the Schwar the Hivero, and that's generally what they've been called since they popped up in the written record of the Spanish in the 16th century. But as I discussed in the last episode, that term has become somewhat pejorative, and the Hivero of today prefer to be called the Schwar, so that's what I've been calling them. Just know that when I quote older anthropological studies about the Schwar, the term Hivero will pop up, but we're talking about the same people. Today, the Schwar still exist, and I'll talk about where they are now at the end of this episode. But for now, I want to go back in time again, back when encroachment and industry and Western adaptations hadn't found the Schwar yet. Back to that misty jungle where the slopes of the Andes and the violent rapids of the Rio Upano sheltered one of the most distinctive peoples of all time. Let's go back to the beginning. Life, as we see it, is a lie. At least it was according to the Schwar. Those headphones you might have in right now, the device you're listening to this podcast on, 
that car you might be driving, even my voice is all just part of a greater falsehood that makes up the world we see. The Schwar believed that the only way to view the true reality that underlies everything is to take hallucinogens, and that it was only in a drugged state that you could actually see the truth of reality, which was 100% ruled by supernatural and shamanistic forces. Harner described this after having lived with the interior Schwar for 14 months, saying, quote, The Hivero believe that the true determinants of life and death are normally invisible forces which can be seen and utilized only with hallucinogenic drugs. The normal waking life is especially viewed as false or a lie, and it is firmly believed that the truth about causality is to be found by entering the supernatural world or what the Hivero view as the real world, for they feel that the events which take place within it underlie and are the basis for many of the surface manifestations and mysteries of daily life." Unquote. In other words, nothing is real except what you see when you're in a drug-induced state, and literally everything that happens to you, good and bad, has nothing to do with the everyday world we see, but only with that hidden, invisible realm that can only be accessed with hallucinogens. There were six different kinds of hallucinogens used by the Schwar, one that's pretty popular today, known as ayahuasca. The dimethyltryptamine, or DMT, in ayahuasca interacts with the serotonin receptors in your brain, which greatly affects your emotion and vision, and lasts for about 12 hours. They have one drug, mycua, that's even stronger, and it's said if you take too much and too often, you end up losing your mind and talking to trees all day in the jungle. There are accounts of people running off of cliffs, too, so maybe pass on the Maikua if you ever have the occasion. The Schwar believed all of this so completely that within a few days of its birth, a newborn infant would be given a hallucinogenic drug with the intention that this would help the baby to enter the real world and see an ancient specter of some kind that would help it survive the perils of infancy that would otherwise make it vulnerable. This drug was called Tisensima, and came from a yet botanically unidentified plant. Harner didn't recognize the plant they made it from, and with so many still undiscovered species of flora that lay within the Amazon, those of us in the West still might not be able to recognize it, so this one is a bit of a mystery. The leaves of the Tisensima plant would be masticated, or chewed first, by an adult, then fed to the newborn baby. If the baby became sick because it had just been given drugs, it would be given the Tisensima again. Drugs were also given to children who misbehaved. The disciplinary drug was Mykua, that extra fortified hallucinogen, and it came from a plant in the Datura family. Specifically, a genus of flowering plant found in the Americas as well as Africa. They are sometimes referred to as devil's trumpets, moonflowers, thorn apple, jimson weed, and the list goes on. If you Google it, it'll probably look familiar. Apparently, Datura flowers became popular in the 90s and 2000s with teenagers, many of whom became violently ill, and in some cases, Datura even caused death. So please don't go eat a bunch of flowers after listening to this. You will absolutely die. The idea behind giving a child who misbehaved a hallucinogen was that the child would see the truth about how unwise and reckless their behavior was when they saw the truth of reality in their drug-induced state, at which point they were supposed to suddenly realize that their parents had been right all along. 
This was a heavy way to reprimand a kid, and these kinds of hallucinogens can really have some serious effects on an adult, let alone a child, and so children were only given drugs as punishment as a last resort. This would come only after the parents had already tried spanking the child with a nettle. If the nettle didn't work, then a parent would gather a large number of hot peppers and place them into a small fire. The child would be put as close as possible to the fire and covered with a cloth. Inhaling the smoke from the burning hot peppers under a poorly ventilated blanket would cause the child to breathe in the smoke of the hot peppers until it became unconscious. I was a pretty stubborn kid, but I think I would have tapped out right after the nettle spanking. Probably before. I'd venture to say that almost everywhere in the modern world, this would be considered child abuse. Pretty sure causing your kid to pass out from a hot pepper fire under a blanket would get you arrested fairly quickly. Also, we don't tend to see giving drugs to kids as a good thing. But the taking of hallucinogens was an extremely important part of growing up schwar, and there were specific rituals and rites of passage for both girls and boys that involved doing so. The whole point of these rituals was to allow a child to acquire an arutam soul. You aren't born with an arutam soul, according to the schwar, you have to obtain one, and after you do, you are invincible. You cannot be killed until it leaves you. I'll explain more on that in a minute, but first I want to tell you about a couple of those coming-of-age rituals. When a girl was approximately two to eight years old, she participated in something called an Uchi-Ok festival. This literally translates into child swallowing. This was a four-day event, and a half-dozen girls or so would all go through this together. About a week beforehand, the girls were placed on a restrictive diet, not being allowed to eat the meat of any mammals or birds. On the morning of the first ritual day, the girls would start dancing, and they'd keep dancing together until mid-afternoon. Then they were given the drug Tisensima. Apparently Tisensima took a while to kick in because it wasn't until nightfall of that same day that they were taken to a palm-thatched lean-to in the jungle where they would lay down and just trip out. They were supposed to have visions of chickens and pigs, and when she saw and acquired an Arutam soul in this state, it was meant to help the young girl produce plentiful harvests in the future and bring her success in fertility. The same thing was repeated for four consecutive days. For the boys, this was a bit different, because as I discussed in the last episode, there was a 60% murder rate among males for the interior Shuar people, so it was extremely important that a boy find an Arutam soul as soon as he was old enough to do so. This was somewhere around six years of age. This was the absolutely most important thing in a boy's entire life. This vision quest he would go on, usually along with his father, was always at the site of a waterfall, because waterfalls were sacred places to the Shuar. This ritual was all imperative for the boy's survival. It was believed there was no way he would survive into puberty without it. The Arutam soul didn't only give him invincibility, it also gave him the qualities one needs to cultivate a good personal character, specifically honesty, a good work ethic, and intelligence. A boy's vision quest could last up to five days, and if unsuccessful, they would come back to try again at a later date until he was given an Arutam soul. I love how Harner wrote about this, and I'll just read you the passage here because it's got some really beautiful imagery. Quote, 
A boy begins seeking an Arutam soul at about the age of six years. Accompanied most commonly by his father, he makes a pilgrimage to the sacred waterfall in his neighborhood. This is always the highest waterfall within a few days' travel. It is believed to be the rendezvous of these souls or spirits which wander about as breezes scattering the spray of the long cascade. During the day, the vision seekers bathe in the waterfall by striding back and forth under its cold and drenching canopy, actually walking between the downpour and the cliff from which it is dropping. They walk naked and shivering, and in some danger from falling logs which may be swept over the cliff with the current. Each passes with the aid of a magical balsa wood staff carved for the occasion, and chants, Tao, 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 continually. By night, the pilgrims sleep under the falls in a simple lean-to. Here, they fast, drink tobacco water made by steeping green tobacco leaves on cold water, and await the appearance of an arutam." Unquote. So the next time you find yourself at a waterfall and feel a slight breeze on your face, you'll have to wonder if that's not just an arutam saying hi. This is a good time to discuss the three different types of souls that the Shuar believed in. These were the Arutam, or the acquired soul we just discussed, the Muisak, or the avenging soul of a slain person who had at one time acquired an Arutam soul sometime in their life, and the true soul, the one that you're born with, and the Shuar believed this came into existence the moment you were born. I'll explain each one in turn. You already know the Arutam is a temporarily acquired soul that makes the possessor of it invincible. It was totally imperative that a warrior have one before going on a head-shrinking raid, as there was no question they would be killed without one. When someone wanted an Arutam soul, they would take Datura, that drug from flower stems we discussed earlier, and they would do this in the presence of at least one other person who could babysit them the whole time, as the effects of this drug could make someone run off into the jungle, or drown, or have any number of things you usually see teenagers on drugs do on after-school specials. Datura tends to cause a state of excitation, delirium, and hallucination, followed by a state of narcosis, which leaves the taker extremely vulnerable, so they would want to be around someone they trusted. A person on a vision quest took the drug on their own because the Arutam soul wouldn't appear to a coward, and if you were too scared to venture into the hallucinogenic realm on your own, the Shuar believed you were too much of a coward to find a soul. The hallucinogenic hunt for an Arutam does sound like it was pretty scary, and also weirdly specific. After taking the drug, the seeker was said to have awakened around midnight to see that all the stars had vacated from the night sky, which, in the Amazon, meant the lonely warrior was totally without light. The earth was then said to tremble, and a great wind would come, felling huge trees in the forest all around them. They'd grab onto a tree in order to themselves not be blown away, and they would wait, because all of this meant an Arutam was about to appear. When it did, it was usually in the form of a pair of large creatures fighting, usually jaguars or anacondas, both sacred animals. The Arutam could also appear as a giant ball of fire or a huge disembodied head. I'll tell you one of the last things I'd probably want to see if I were alone in the dark, starless jungle with huge trees crashing all around me would be a giant disembodied head careening toward me at an incredible rate. Once the Arutam was within about 20 or 30 feet, the warrior would have to run up to it as fast as they could. 
This was recorded as something that took a monumental amount of courage to do. Then they'd reach out their hand and touch it. It would then explode in an epic eruption like dynamite and disappear. After seeing an Arutam in this manner, a seeker would go back home and sleep. At nightfall, the Arutam they touched would come to them in a dream, appearing as an old Shwar man that says, I am your ancestor. Just as I have lived a long time, so will you. Just as I have killed many times, so will you. When this old man disappeared, the Arutam entered the body of the dreamer. Then they would have their Arutam soul. Once you had your Arutam soul, the last thing you could do was tell anyone, because if you did, it would flee from you, and the whole thing would have been for nothing. It was said that it was still obvious when an Arutam vision quest was successful, as the person who went on it would come back with a noticeable amount of new confidence, and usually an overwhelming desire to kill. If the seeker was a man, he would usually join in on a head-shrinking raid within a couple of months. If it was a woman that acquired an Arutam soul, she would usually satiate the desire to kill by poisoning someone's food or beer. Either way, when you got an Arutam soul, you were going to kill sooner than later. Your invincibility came with a price, and that price was death. The belief that a person with an Arutam soul cannot be killed was reinforced in a particularly social way. Once you had an Arutam, you were known as a Karakum, or a powerful one. This meant that no one would even bother trying to kill you because it was believed that any attempt to do so would be futile. This meant that a person with an Arutam usually didn't die through murder, which reinforced the belief that they couldn't be killed. And if they were killed on a raid anyway, everyone just chalked it up to their Arutam having left earlier without their having known it. However, if you were a shaman, and one in every four people were, you could steal the Arutam soul of your intended victim. Or if someone had two Arutam souls, which was the max amount you could have at any given time, you could steal one from them for yourself. It was said that under the influence of drugs, a shaman could see someone's Arutam soul in the form of an inverted rainbow in the chest, which sounds kind of pretty. When someone died, a new Arutam soul was born at the moment of their death. The number of new souls matched how many old souls they had acquired throughout their lifetime, a sort of tit-for-tat soul emergence. The new Arutam souls would travel as breezes eternally, entering into the shuar of future generations who would seek them out on vision quests. The creation of these souls was said to hail thunder and great winds, storms that created a cacophony of sound throughout the ancient, giant trees standing sentinel throughout the Amazon. But at the exact moment these new Arutam souls were believed to be born, another kind of soul was said to form simultaneously. This was the Muisak, or avenging soul. The existence of the Muisak soul, the fear of its vengeance and the consequences of having brought it into existence by murdering another person, are why the Shuar made shrunken heads. A Muisak soul is produced by murdering someone who at some point in their life had attained an Arutam soul. The Shuar believed that such a death could be caused through either physical violence or supernatural shamanic means. The only reason a Muisak soul was believed to exist was so it could exact revenge on either its killer or its killer's family. 
The Shuar didn't fear much, but they were truly afraid of the vengeance brought on by a Muisak soul. When someone was murdered, their avenging soul was said to leave their body through their mouth. If a shrunken head was not prepared immediately after a killing, the victim's avenging soul was said to be able to travel as far as it liked and would produce any wanchi or demon that killed its murderer in typically one of three ways. One, it got a poisonous snake to bite you, and in the Amazon there are no shortage of those. There are 17 in all. Two, it came in the form of a huge anaconda that knocked over your canoe, causing you to drown. Or three, it got a tree to fall on you in the forest. The avenging souls of tree sloths were said to specifically employ this method. Yes, I just said tree sloths. These weren't the only ways an avenging soul could kill you. They didn't always have to send a demon out to do their dirty work, and pretty much any fatal accident that happened to a shuar was thought to be the direct result of a muisak soul, even deadly wounds that you accidentally inflicted upon yourself. If you were chopping wood and lobbed off your own foot, it wasn't your fault, it was a muisak soul. If you were unfortunate enough to be permanently dismembered or crippled by any means, this meant the demon sent by the Muisak soul failed to exact its revenge all the way. The good news was that once a Muisak soul killed someone out of revenge, it never killed again. It just went to feast in the great beyond with its ancestors. So the glass was kinda half full there. According to Harner, the anthropologist I just can't stop referencing, the process of shrinking a head forced the avenging soul inside of it. This meant that right after the beheading, the shrinking process had to begin the Shuar would literally be starting the process of head shrinking as they were retreating from the battlefield, stopping every so often to do the things they couldn't do as they walked or ran back home. Once home, the heads would already be finished. This took about six days, and I'll talk more about this and the whole process of making shrunken heads in just a bit. After returning, the warriors would throw a Sansa, or shrunken head feast. Sometimes three feasts in total were required. During the feast, everyone was on their best behavior because it was said that a muisak soul could slip out of a shrunken head if there was discord of any kind and cause social disruption and fighting and even murder during a large gathering. So playing nice at these feasts was a requirement. Perhaps the most important reason to have these feasts after a battle was so that the celebrants could expel the trapped avenging soul back to its own homestead, which would then render it harmless. They would chant to the muisaks of the people they had just killed, singing, quote, Now, now, go back to your house where you lived. Your wife is there, calling from your house. You have come here to make us happy. Finally, we have finished, so return, unquote. Not super poetic, but it's to the point. After the soul left, it's debated as to what happened to the leftover physical shrunken head, According to Harner, it was displayed proudly in the killer's home and even buried with them after they died. Sometimes a killer would bring out the heads for dances or wear them on meditative lonely walks throughout the woods. That's sort of romantic in a way. I prefer to take a thermos of coffee on my meditative walks, but to each their own. According to Yandial et al., the Tisansas would often just be discarded as their purpose was fulfilled. Sometimes they would even be given to the kids to play with. Yandial et al. also asserted that the reason the Shuar held a Sansa feast wasn't only to release a potentially avenging soul back to its homeland, 
but was done more so to demonstrate to their own murdered ancestors that a blood revenge had been completed. Head raids were strictly vengeance-driven, and although most grievances were probably imaginary and chalked up to some underhanded shamanism that may or may not have actually occurred, they were always done because someone believed their relative or ancestor had been killed by the person whose head they had just shrunk. Remember in the last episode how young boys were daily made to recite the blood grievances of their families and the names of those they were supposed to kill? These head raids were the answer to that ingrained recitation. So a little bit of this, a little bit of that, some blood vengeance here, an avenging soul there. What all the sources unequivocally do agree upon is that once the Western world found out about shrunken heads, they started to be sold to tourists and foreigners. This sales explosion began in the 1800s and went on for quite some time. There's still a market for shrunken heads, although now you'd be paying upwards of about 20 grand instead of 25 bucks. And it's illegal to make a shrunken head now, so anything you buy is old stock, and probably actually the head of a tree sloth or a monkey or even a goat. About 80% of the shrunken heads sold to tourists were fakes, a patchwork of goat skins or the shrunken heads of monkeys or tree sloths. The demand for shrunken heads led to an increase in the number of head raids, which became much more common in order to supply the demand of Westerners. I'll talk about this more in a few, but first I want to discuss the last type of soul the Shuar believed in. This was the true soul. This is simply the soul you are born with. The Shuar believed your true soul was made out of your blood, so any blood loss was actually seen as soul loss, too. When a person died, their true soul was believed to leave their body and return in invisible form to a spirit version of the house they had been born in. Their family was there, along with their neighbors and extended relatives. They engaged in the same activities they had in life and pretty much just lived an invisible version of their same existence. The only difference was, these souls were always hungry. This eternal hunger was something the Shuar greatly feared. If you saw a deer or an owl in the forest, you were seeing the temporary embodiment of one of these hungry souls. This is why the Shuar abstained from eating the meat of either of these animals. Once you finished reliving your former life out in the invisible realm as a, quote, human demon, just as you had when you were alive, you became a lonely, wandering, ever-hungry, true demon. You were pretty much the same as you were when you were invisible, only now you were uglier and couldn't find your family. You just wandered around the forest in a lonesome sort of agony. After you lived yet another lifespan in this way, it was believed your soul morphed into a giant wampum, a huge species of either moth or butterfly. You were still hungry as one of these, and if you flew into the house of a living family, they would throw manioc at you to help satiate your hunger. Harner saw the Schwar offer manioc to these moths as they believed they actually were the hungry, transformed soul of one of their ancestors. After a while, no one really seemed to know how long for sure, you'd fall to the ground in a big torrential downpour and die. Again. Then, your soul transformed once more, this time into water vapor amidst the falling rain. All fog and clouds and mists were believed to be the final embodiments of Shuar true souls. After you turned into mist, that's just how you stayed forever. I'm not sure that's a very happy ending, but what do I know? Maybe it'd be peaceful living as a cloud forever. 
Harner said the Schwar he integrated with were not very interested in the true soul. Everyone was always about the Arutam. As far as gods go, it seems the Schwar believed in a confusing-sounding, overarching goddess that was comprised of an all-knowing Earth Mother, but sometimes also fairies, or what sort of sounds like fairies. Nunyui was her name, and she was responsible for fertility, harvests, dogs, pottery making, and a plethora of other things. She was usually discussed as being a singular entity, but the Schwar also saw her as a conglomeration of many individual beings. These beings were described as about three feet tall, very fat, and all dressed in black. She loved dancing, and in order to get her to appear in your garden, you had to clear a new Nui, a little dance floor, and make sure your garden was properly weeded. It was believed she could suck the blood out of people through the manioc tubers in the garden, and women would sing songs to her in order to get her to suck the blood from any enemies in the vicinity. This was also a great way to keep the children out of the garden, and many parents were said to tell their kids that if they messed around in the garden, Nunyui would suck all their blood out. I know for sure my mother would have employed that same threat if she had thought of it. It didn't seem, at least to Harner, that there was any god in the picture, but there was a male sort of deity who was said to have been the very first shaman. His name was Tusunyi, and he was said to still be living in a house made of anacondas under the water using a turtle as a stool. I love that imagery. He was described as having white skin and long hair, and sometimes changed into the form of an anaconda. If Tusunyi was mad at you, there was no way you could protect yourself from him. And if he favored you, he would give you invisible shaman darts called Tsensek that were made of crystal and were super deadly, so you could throw them at your enemies with your mind. I couldn't find anything on a creation story, but that doesn't mean the Shuar didn't have one. It's definitely possible that in the last minute scramble to try and preserve the ancient lifestyle and beliefs of the Shuar, the anthropologists in the early to mid 20th centuries never got the full story about the Shuar believed. The Shuar had already changed when Harner began studying them in the 50s, and a language barrier was a problem the whole time. And it's possible that people believed slightly different things in each household. Most families were isolated. Imagine trying to explain your entire complex of religious or spiritual beliefs, if you have any, to someone who didn't speak your language. And if you don't have any, then imagine trying to describe your favorite book or movie. Do you think they'd understand all those nuances? Probably not. So we're probably missing some stuff. It's still incredible that we have the accounts that we do, and I'm not at all trying to undervalue the research we do have. I guess my point is that when it comes to the ancient Shuar, we may never truly know the whole story. The last thing I want to talk about before we get into the gory head-shrinking bit is shamanism, because shamanism was the heartbeat of the Shuar culture. It was the reason that headhunting was so prevalent and can be directly tied to the violence that overshadowed all of Shuar culture. That's because shamanism was said to be the answer to the thing that the Shuar feared above all else. More than jaguars, more than 17 kinds of poisonous snakes, head-shrinking neighbors, or bad hallucinogenic trips. And that thing was witchcraft. Yep, good old, timeless, cross-culturally feared witchcraft. By the way, I've actually known some people who identify as witches in my time, and they were some of the most polite and delightful people I've met. 
But the Schwar were not fans, and it was believed that every single misfortune that befell you, including any illness, came from an attack through witchcraft. Well, that's all the misfortunes that befell you that didn't come from avenging souls. Either way, bad things were all steeped in a supernatural causality. Since the Schwar believed that the reality we know is false, and that the truth resided in a spiritual realm that you could only access through drugs, shamans played the roles of specialists that were able to move between this world and the real supernatural world to act on your behalf and influence the unseen in your favor. There were two types of shamans, bewitchers and curers. Both men and women could be shamans, according to Harner, although from the accounts I've read, it sounds like the majority were men. At least that's how I've interpreted it. Shamans compromised roughly 25% of the entire Shuar population. To become a shaman was actually pretty easy. You'd just give a gift, usually a musket, to someone who was already an established shaman, then you would take a hallucinogen for 10 days in a row while they bestowed upon you some of their supernatural powers. Then you just couldn't have sex for five months. And if you really wanted to be a powerful shaman, you'd stay abstinent for a whole year. The power bestowed upon you came in the form of those invisible shaman darts I discussed earlier. These darts never went bad, but you could run out, so you would either need to get more from another shaman or from one account, you could just eat specific types of bugs and spiders and they would turn into more darts in your stomach. These darts were invisible and could only be thrown with your mind. If you were a cursing shaman, you'd send your darts out in the form of a demon or some other dark thing to cause death or illness to either someone who you felt had wronged you or to someone that someone else paid you to harm, like a supernatural assassin for hire of sorts. If you were a curing shaman, you could send your darts in the form of animal or spirit helpers. You could also suck out the bad darts from someone who had been cursed. These would then shoot back to the shaman that had tried to curse the person in the first place. To protect themselves from these darts, shamans would constantly have to drink tobacco water. This didn't cause them to hallucinate, but did keep them in a constant partial high that was believed to help them repel the invisible darts. They would also get super high all the time for the same purposes. Supernatural offenses were always met with physical violence, and since every bad thing that happened to you that couldn't be ascribed to an avenging Muisak soul had to be witchcraft, witch hunts were the norm. In any case of accusatory witch hunting, people who were not guilty of any offense at all were often killed. Harner says this in his book, quote, with the guilt determined through divination with the aid of a hallucinogenic drug, and the subsequent vengeance probably wreaked on the wrong person, even if one believes in witchcraft deaths, it is clear that the shamanistic beliefs and practices have repercussions which heighten the sense of outrage and injustice that permeates the society and sets household against household. Under these circumstances, Hevero witchcraft clearly promotes rather than decreases physical violence." Unquote. You could go back not so far in time and change out the word Hebrew from that quote for colonial Puritan or post-Reformation Christian and make dovetailing comparisons with the witch trials we've seen all throughout Europe and the US. The superstitious and religious-driven fear of witchcraft goes back much further than European history, probably millennia, 
but just between 1482 and 1782 CE, in Europe alone, upwards of 100,000 people were accused of witchcraft, with over 40 to 80,000, according to most accounts, of them being killed for it in excruciating ways. And the torture, well, I'll leave that for a future episode, but let's just say it got creative. And some scholars put that number of accused and killed much higher. My point here is the Schwa were no more ferocious when it came to reacting to superstitious beliefs than anyone else was, and compared to those methods employed by church authorities and the stark numbers we saw in medieval Europe, they seem almost innocuous, at least in number. Though to be fair, medieval Europe was much more populated than the interior Amazon. I guess my point is, witch hunts, no matter who you are or where you are, cause a hell of a lot of damage to everyone. Alright, let's go now to what went on during an actual head raid and find out just how to take a human head and shrink it to the size of a fist. Again, please don't. The beginning of a deadly feud usually started with an alleged accusation of witchcraft, although poisoning and wife-stealing were also socially acceptable reasons to kill someone. You couldn't just go over to someone's house and murder everyone, though. First, you had to make a declaration of warfare, something like, let us fight with guns. This wasn't so much to give your neighbors a heads up, as it was to show everyone else that you were playing fair, abiding by the unwritten rules of blood vengeance that were more or less a legal justification for murder. And you wouldn't kill your enemy right away. Usually you would wait three to five years before attacking. So for three to five years, if someone sent a declaration of war to you, you'd be looking over your shoulder literally all the time, just waiting for an attack. People usually slept with their guns in their beds, and they never went outside after dark. In a raid, generally your entire family would be killed. The children, the men, the women, old and young didn't matter, and everyone was decapitated, at least according to most accounts. When someone finally decided it was time to act on their killing impulsions, and this only happened after acquiring that Arutam soul that made you invincible, you'd start to plan your attack. And all of this was done with the utmost secrecy. On the last episode, we talked about how in 1599, the Schwar war leader, Big Frog, got over 20,000 people to keep it a secret that they were going to kill all the Spaniards in a single day. And this worked. They killed the governor of Lagrano and sacked his city, totally unawares, and the only reason their last attack wasn't a surprise is because someone from a different tribe, one of the Makas, finally spilled the beans. We can understand in this context why that worked. If secrecy was an integral part of the Schwar way of life, an ability that could decide life or death even through the 1950s, we can see how a culture that revered secrecy so much was able to pull off such a huge sneak attack successfully. Now, before you could attack, you had to make sure your victim didn't have an Arutam soul, because if they did, they were invincible and couldn't be killed, which meant your attack would end in failure. This was done in one of two ways. One, you could do a bunch of drugs and bang on a hollowed out log signal drum all night, chanting your intended victim's name. If their Arutam soul happened to be out wandering in the jungle, it would hear your cry, take pity on you, then enter you instead. 
Your victim would wake up the next day and have no idea you had just stolen their Arutam soul. The more common way of ensuring your victim's soul was gone was to just make sure you kept up on tribal gossip. If your victim came down with a cold or had some sort of an accident, it meant they were vulnerable. So if you caught a cold, it could literally be deadly, not because there was nothing to treat it, but because it meant your neighbors might kill you and your entire family. So if you believe your victim has no Arutam and you decide you're ready to attack, you would send a younger warrior out to neighboring households, which remember were usually some miles apart, and they would start recruiting others who were interested in joining you. According to Yandial et al., war parties usually consisted of 30 to 50 warriors, but in the latter half of the 20th century, when raids became fewer and further between, there could be as few as three or even two participants. Some of the participants could be boys as young as six years old. While these children were not expected to kill someone on their own, they were expected to be introduced to the carnage that came with brutal killing. Sometimes being forced to shoot the corpse of a murdered person to just get the feel for it. It's no wonder that a violent existence was the result of this kind of upbringing. Reciting the names of those you had to kill from birth, having to take drugs because you'd be killed if you didn't have a vision, being taken on a raid that promoted murder as the apex of an honorable lifestyle. And all of this was being done in isolation. You only knew your family and only met other kids at ceremonial feasts that, again, promoted the head-shrinking and vengeance ideals. There was no formal education system, no writing, no interest in anything we could think of as science or even an interest in understanding how nature worked aside from the day-to-day -day level. And why would there be if you really believed that the living world was an illusion? Under these circumstances, it would be next to impossible not to become exactly what you were raised to be. But again, I digress. After finding interested warriors, you'd then find someone who was willing to throw the all-important Sansa or Shrunken Head Feast upon the completion of your raid. This person would have a ton of manioc beer prepared and several pigs slaughtered for the occasion. The feast would clean out the food supplies of the host so much so that sometimes subsisting afterwards would be problematic. They also had to build a weya, a brand new party house, just for the celebration. So if you were the host, your house was going to be full of people and all your stuff would be eaten. When all the social stuff was worked out and you'd scouted the area of your enemy, you'd all meet for two to four days before you headed out, drink manioc beer and do some chanting. If your dreams were fortuitous and consisted of what you interpreted as good omens, the next day you'd set out at dawn, heading straight for the enemy's territory. Since intertribal feuding was a primary feature of Shuar life, you very well could be in the same war party as someone who had sent you a declaration of war and vice versa. During the raid, you were to forget about the fact that later you'd be killing each other and focus on whoever it was you were killing that day. This ability to put aside intertribal feuds to combat a common enemy is another aspect of Shuar culture that aided them in uniting against the Incas, then the Spanish, despite their warring culture. So this is another example we can hearken directly back to that famous rebellion in 1599. The house of the intended victim was usually some days away, so the Shuar would rotate scouting duties, making sure someone was awake at all times to keep an eye on things the entire way. 
In the 20th century, some of the warriors would bring muskets with them, but the killing was typically all done with a chanta wood palm spear. This was because muskets were loud and could alert your enemies, losing you the element of surprise. Also, the preferred way of killing someone was to thrust a spear into their neck. This did three things. First, it kept them from crying out for help. Two, it could make the ensuing decapitation process much easier. Three, if you killed someone with a palm lance, it demonstrated your valor and prowess as a fighter. Late in the afternoon, the day before the attack, the war party would stop in the jungle about a quarter mile away from the victim's settlement. The warriors all huddled together, and this is when they would finally get to describe aloud the Arutamsol they'd seen during their last vision quest. Now, because they talked about their Arutam, they'd lose it at this moment. It was said to go back into the forest as wind to enter another warrior in the distant future. Although their souls had left them, the warriors still believed themselves to be invincible, since the power of the Arutam took about two weeks to wear away, which meant they were still unable to be killed in battle. If for some reason the attack failed, the warriors would not be able to obtain any future Arutam souls until they killed someone. So it was a life or death imperative that they all at least kill somebody before they went home. They truly believed that they would die within weeks or months at most if they did not murder someone. If their attack failed, the warriors would either have to quickly find and attack another enemy or find strangers to murder in their stead. So if you were unfortunate enough to be wandering on the trails on the same day an attack failed, you probably weren't going to make it back home. The morning after losing their Arutam souls, the warriors would silently approach the victim's house. The people in the house knew that at some point they were going to be attacked, so the approaching party had to be wary of traps laid around the house. These could be swinging traps or pitfalls, or even a camouflaged moat filled with sharpened spikes. Often, the roof of the victim's house would be set on fire, forcing them to flee outside and leave all of their defenses. If this worked, then bloodshed quickly ensued. The victims would typically be armed, and a fight to the death could lead to losses on both sides. An account from Yandial et al. described another scenario, in which the attackers would begin firing at the house and yelling insults to goad out the family inside. The family would reply that they were well-stocked, and would invite the attackers to come on in. If the attacking party believed the family inside had a fighting chance, they typically withdrew to make those inside believe they had gone. They could wait for days until someone finally had to leave the house, at which point they would kill them. They would sometimes wait a few days until, under cover of darkness, they attacked again in full force. Either way, all heads were taken from the victims. Some accounts say the children's bodies were just discarded, others say their heads were taken too. The decapitations had to be done with some haste, as the attackers may not have killed everyone they had hoped to, and not wanting to wait for neighboring houses to arrive, or to allow time for their victims to reload, they would grab as many heads as they could and start the journey back home, preparing the heads along the way, as they only had a short window of time to trap the vengeful Muisak souls of their murdered victims into their shrunken heads. I'm going to tell you now exactly how these heads were made. 
And as you can imagine, it's pretty gross. So if you're eating, maybe hit pause until you're done. And if you're someone who is bothered by violent or bloody descriptions of things, maybe skip ahead, because this is at least going to give you super weird dreams. I found two excellent primary sources for head recipes, both pretty similar and equally horrifying. The following is a conglomeration of the two, one being Harner's book, The Hevero, People of the Sacred Waterfalls, and the other, that paper from Yandiel et al., The Science of Shrinking Human Heads, Tribal Warfare, and Revenge Among the South American Hevero Schwar. All right, here we go. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to the History Cash podcast. You have many thousands of podcasts to choose from, and I'm massively appreciative that you've chosen to listen to mine. I also want to thank everyone who has followed the show and taken the time to write a review. It has definitely helped to make the show more visible. If you're interested in further supporting the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You'll get access to a members-only feed, a shout-out on the show, and access to any future members-only bonus episodes I do. I do this podcast because I want to make history accessible to everyone and bring you the stories of those that have come before us to life in a way you may not have experienced in history class. A history podcast as intensively researched as this one takes an ungodly amount of time and energy to produce, especially since I'm doing it all on my own, and knowing you're out there listening makes me feel like it's all worth it. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, back to the show. First, the killer would take a machete, or maybe a knife, and peel back the victim's skin from the uppermost parts of the chest, shoulders, and back. After this, the head was severed as close as possible from near the collarbones. To make the severed head easier to carry in a hurry, the killer would take their headband and string it through the victim's mouth and neck hole so it could be thrown over their shoulder. A vine could be substituted for a headband in a pinch. Next, the warriors would have to find a safe spot by a river before they could begin the next step, which was to make a slit up the back of the head, carefully cutting and peeling the skin away from the skull. The excess skin was discarded and thrown into the river as a gift for the anacondas. Sharpened wooden pins were used to remove the remaining cartilaginous connections on the ears and nose, this too would be discarded, along with the actual skull of the victim, which didn't seem to hold any importance. The biggest reason these heads were able to be made so small was because they were devoid of the victim's skull. This whole beginning process would only take something like 15 minutes. When you'd done all your peeling and had what probably looked something like a hollowed-out Halloween mask of your victim's face, you would throw it in a pot full of boiling river water. These ritual vessels were made for this specific purpose and were about 50 centimeters in width and height. They were discarded after use. The heads would be boiled for about 15 minutes, sometimes longer, but never to exceed a half hour since if you boiled them for too long, most of the hair would fall off. At this point, the skin would already have shrunk to about half its original size and it was removed from the pot turned inside out and scraped clean on the inside to remove all the extra loose flesh. 
The resulting product would be hung up on a spear to dry. What a sight that must have been. That ended the first part of the process, and if they felt they were in a safe area, the warriors could now eat, sleep, and regroup. At dawn the next day, the rite of tobacco would begin. Only Yandiel's account describes this rite, but I'm going to include it anyway because there's some pretty amazing imagery that comes with it. The most senior warrior, who was also typically the most respected, would spend the early morning hours chewing tobacco leaves into a liquid and spitting it out into a vessel until he had collected what he determined to be enough for the ensuing ceremony. He would then put the liquid back into his mouth, grab each warrior, and spit the liquid up into their nose very forcefully, four times. I've never done anything like this, but I can't imagine having chewed up tobacco liquid shot into your nose from someone else's mouth would feel very good. After this, the warriors adhered to a strict diet, abstained from sex and the use of weapons, and couldn't wear certain personal adornments. They would trace the outlines of skeletons on their bodies, front and back. The paper doesn't go into why this is done, and I wish it would have, because I'm sure there is an absolutely fascinating reason the warriors presented themselves this way. This whole process was considered sacred, and done very carefully, so I would have loved to know what the beliefs behind those skeletons drawn on the warriors' bodies were, but like I've said before, some parts of Shuar culture will always remain mysterious and just out of our understanding. After this was done, the head was taken off of the spear it was drying on, and the hair was tied back into a ponytail. Then the slit made previously in the back of the head was sewn together with the inner bark of a palm tree. A vine was used to either sew the mouth closed, or a heated machete was pressed against its lips, after which three palm darts were pushed through them. The eyes were sewn shut now as well. Vine was woven through the skin and around the neck hole, transforming it into a pouch for the next step in the process. Five or six small stones were heated in the fire, then transferred into the head through the neck hole, where they were rolled around inside until they cooled. This was repeated until the head became too small for the stones, at which point heated sand would be poured inside the head and covered with a large leaf to keep the heat from escaping too quickly. This is repeated for several hours. If the war party was on the move, still unsure of its safety or had a lot of ground to cover, this could be done in several places periodically along the trail. This whole process is complicated, and it makes you wonder who figured it all out first. I wonder how much trial and error there was before someone finally decided this recipe was the one. And you still weren't done after this. Periodically, during the heated sand part of the ritual, the warrior would massage the skin to help keep its shape. Without the underlying structure of a skull, keeping what was once a human face looking like it used to be a human face was apparently quite the chore. Each day, the skin of the face was rubbed with finely powdered balsa wood charcoal in order to blacken it. The Shuar believed this kept the avenging Muisak soul from seeing through and identifying its killers. By the way, you can get balsa wood scented candles and diffusers pretty much anywhere, especially around Christmas time. I wonder if they would smell the same as it did when the Shuar were making their charcoal, minus the smell of heated flesh, of course. Sometimes a large red seed would be placed beneath each eyelid before they were sewn shut. This too was to keep the Muisak soul from seeing its killer. Pretty much everything you did after killing someone was to ensure that this avenging soul didn't see you 
or escape to exact its revenge on you. This very real, very palpable fear was held onto all the way until those shrunken head feasts that were the height of Shuar's social activity. These feasts would begin two days after the warriors returned from the killing raid and would last six days. Sometimes one feast was enough, sometimes three in total were necessary to send away the avenging souls of the victims. The warriors would come to these feasts wearing their shrunken heads around their necks. At the conclusion of the last feast, the pins and vine string would be removed from the mouth and replaced with cotton string, two for each of the three mouth suture holes, and would dangle down from the head for about three feet. It's after this that we see those conflicting accounts of what was done with the heads. Some say they were discarded, given to the children to play with, kept as an object of pride, or even buried with the killer at a later date. All of these scenarios have been put forth in primary sources. So what happened to the heads probably just varied from family unit to family unit. This wouldn't be surprising in a culture where the family household was the center of everything, miles from other collections of people who spoke the same language, but maybe did things a little differently. We do know for sure, though, that when the shrunken head trade took off, murder rates went up. At least until the shrunken head trade was outlawed in Ecuador and Peru in the 1930s. Back then, you could get a head for 25 to 300 bucks, so the counterfeit head shrinking business also exploded with sloths, as we discussed earlier, other monkeys, and even goats. In 1900, 25 bucks would be about 12 billion billion dollars. No, I'm just kidding. But it would be about 714 dollars, and considering the average wage at the time was 500 to 6 dollars per year, Shrunken head collections were a macabre hobby reserved only for the rich. It joined the culturally insensitive mummy unwrapping parties of the time. Just another way to get people to come to your swanky dinner parties. DNA analysis museums are conducting now of their shrunken head collections have revealed that yes, many were fake, but there were still genuine heads being sold. The Smithsonian found out that one of their heads that was supposed to be the head of a shaman that was murdered for not being able to cure a sick child was actually that of a woman. They concluded that, since it's widely believed only men's heads were shrunken, this woman was a victim of the commercial head trade. But I have two things on that after doing months of this research. One, multiple sources do say that all the heads of a slain household were taken, not just the heads of men, but the whole family. And two, Harner described both men and women as being shamans, so the head of this woman could have actually still been the head of a shaman. All shamans were said to have Arutam souls, and if you remember, if someone at any point in their life had acquired an Arutam soul and you killed them, then you had to deal with their avenging Muisak soul. That meant you had to shrink their head. Still, it's an interesting video, even though I don't necessarily agree with their conclusion, and I'll have a link to that and all of the other sources I've used for these episodes in the show notes. So, where are the Shuar now? Well, they're still around, and thriving, mostly in Ecuador, although their culture is largely different than it once was. The introduction of trade and technologies has to a large degree modernized the Shuar culture, although they are still proud of their ancestry. In 1981, the Shuar are said to have shot down on their own a Peruvian military aircraft. This brought them to the attention of the Ecuadorian military, who designated them their own military unit called the Arutam Battalion, 
which is still a respected part of the Ecuadorian army today. But life hasn't been easy for the Shuar, and since the discovery of oil in their region, there has been a lot of heated strain between the Shuar and the rest of the industrially developed world over land and civil rights issues, and people still want that gold that they know is in the Shuar territory. According to Minority Rights Group International, in 2012, the Ecuadorian government granted a mining license to the Mirador Mine Project, financed by the Chinese company Ecuadorientes, which risked impacting water sources, land, 450,000 acres of forest, and the livelihoods of the local populations. The Shuar were not consulted or considered when this deal was made. Some say this is in direct violation of international law. In 2016, due to this same Mirador mine project, Ecuadorian police evicted the local population of the region, and the Shuar claimed they were given no prior notice before they were forced to move. The mine is said to have an estimated 673 million tons of copper ore, with over 4 million ounces of gold and 32 million ounces of silver. As far as I can tell, the situation is still ongoing. So, two of the world's largest and most successful empires failed to take down the Shuar, but their descendants are facing very different kinds of empire, one being modernity, the other international corporate profit. But they're still here, still living, and although the Shuar will never be exactly the same culture they were when they were researched by Harner and the anthropologists of the 20th century, they still, for now, remain unconquerable. And that brings our two-part series on the Shuar of the Amazon to its conclusion. It was a fascinating journey for me, and I hope you enjoyed it too. I learned so much, and I loved learning it and sharing it with you. If you have questions, comments, or you have your own idea for an episode, you can reach me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com historycashpodcasts. Costs have piled up for things like hosting fees, research materials, music licenses, and all the coffee I drink while I furiously mull through research when really I should be sleeping. It took me two months and over a hundred pages of notes to write out just this series on the Schwar, so any listener support is extremely valued and appreciated. If you can't donate, I totally get it. If I donated or became a paying subscriber to every podcast I listened to, I'd be more broke than I am now. But one thing you can do that costs zero dollars and still makes a humongous difference is rate the show and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. The more positive reviews, follows, and subscribers I get, the more likely I am to pop up in a search. Whether or not you donate, leave a good review, or are just here to listen, I am eternally grateful that you took time out of your day to give me and this show a chance and to learn more about the incredible history of the Schwar. You are all heroes of podcast land. So thank you so much for being here, and join me next time when I'll be bringing you another piece of true history more interesting than fiction. I'm your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and until we meet again, go make some history.